0: We come to a unique portion of Scripture. The Psalms are divided up into five books. Um, The first book covers chapters 1 through 41. 1 and 2 serve as an introduction, and then the rest, uh, chapters 3 through 41, comprise the, the first book of Psalms. When we get to Psalm 42, it's the second book of Psalms, and the way that they have organized them Uh, The first few of these psalms, I think it's 42 through 49 or 50, I can't remember uh, which one it is, are the Psalms of the Sons of Korah. This was a musical group within Israel that uh, uh, generationally uh, just had this amazing talent and so they wrote many different songs. They played all kinds of instruments. It was just one of those kind of things that, you know, sometimes happens where a family has some talent, and then the kids have it, and then the grandkids have it, and it's generations on down the line that all have this kind of bend toward this certain thing. For this family, it was music, and so they wrote these songs, and, and the salt and, and the, the person who is putting the Psalms together into a collection says these Psalms need to be together. Now, we don't often read Psalms that way. We often take a particular Psalm and we look at it as, as a whole within itself. We don't look at it in the context, but this is an interesting context leading into Psalm 45. In fact, Psalms 42 through 44 are a bit of a dangerous context, uh, uh, bitter circumstances that the people of Israel are facing. In Psalm 42, it begins with that beautiful verse, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you, O God. But it's not because I love you so much that he's writing that. This particular Psalm is being written because they feel alienated from God's presence. They're desperate for him to return in their midst. They want to be with him, but they're not. And so they're crying out in desperation for God to return to them. Psalm 43 is a plea as well. There are oppressive enemies all around them who are doing them harm. And so in Psalm 43, they're asking for vindication. It begins, vindicate me, O God. God, we need your vindication. We need you to show that you are still in charge and that what you have declared to be true will win out in the end. Vindicate us, Lord. Psalm 44 begins, uh, looks like a positive thing. They're telling of the old deeds that God had done, the actions that demonstrate his faithfulness to their father's on through the annals of history. But then it turns when they realize that now we are not being rescued. We have been despised and rejected. And so Psalm 44, verse 26, ends the Psalm with these words. Sorry, Carrie, you're going to have to follow me along. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. God, help us is where Psalm 44 ends. So it's amazing to see that the first verse of Psalm 45, what happens immediately after that from the same family that brings you, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The very next verse we read says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. That's so poetic in Hebrew that it's poetic in English. What brings the author to wax so poetically right after begging God for mercy? What is it that makes the difference from Psalm 44 to Psalm 45? What is it that makes the difference from, from for your sake, by the way, Psalm 44:22. for your sake, we are like sheep being slaughtered. What brings them from we are your sheep being slaughtered to my heart overflows with a pleasing theme, literally a good word. You might even say good news. What makes the difference? Well, Psalm 45 is a love song. In fact, Psalm 45 isn't just a love song. It's a song about a wedding, a royal wedding. And I think in this wedding, we find what it is that makes the difference between a people who feel despised and rejected by God to a people who are overwhelmed by his goodness. Let's read Psalm 45 together, shall we? Stand with me. Psalm chapter 45. This is God's word. And if you let it, it will change your life. To the choir master, according to lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on high, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O oh God is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved uprightness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The peoples of Tyre will seek you, your favor with gifts, the riches of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness. They are led along as they enter the palace of Of the king in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes of all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Pray with me. Father, what a beautiful poem. What a beautiful song. But you know, it wasn't just written for folks living seven, eight, nine hundred years before Jesus. It's just as true today. Father, would you open our ears to your word? Open our eyes to the beauty and open our hearts to receive it with thankfulness and with obedience. Shape us in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We find two characters in this love song, the king and the queen, right? It's a song about a marriage, right? So there's a husband and a wife. There's a groom and a bride. So let's look at the groom and the bride real quick. I'm sorry, y'all, y'all just have to forgive me. Um, The the groom we really find in verses two through nine, and and it's a picture of majesty. Um, uh, Verse two says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. I gotta admit, I, I can't speak from the bride's perspective. I can speak from the groom's perspective, but I felt handsome on our wedding day. Now, I went through the works for our wedding. I want y'all to know, I, I cut my hair and everything. I took a shower. I mean, some of y'all are like, come on now. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, I went through the whole works. I, I, I was a sharp looking guy up there, okay? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. You can ask my wife. She can tell you for sure. <laughs> Groups don't really go through a whole lot of trouble for the wedding, do they? Not in our culture. In this culture, they did in fact, in this culture, it wasn't really centered on the bride. The wedding was centered on the groom, everything was about the groom. And so, so there is this anticipation of the groom. Normally, like, like in our weddings, the, the groom comes out with the minister right at kind of the start of the service, and he's waiting on everybody to come out, and it all leads up to the bride's interest, and everybody stands up when the bride enters the room, and here comes the bride is playing on the organ or piano or whatever it happens to be, and, and, and she's walking slowly down the aisle, and now all the eyes are on her. Everything is about the bride. But in this culture, it was more about the groom than the bride. Now he would go, in most cases, he would go and pick up the bride. He would go to her house, to her parents' house, and escort her back to his house, to the house that he had prepared for them over time. But it was all centered on the groom. Everything was about him being honored. The bride, everything she did was for his approval. And so you have this interesting scenario where we have to kind of reverse our uh, thinking of weddings and think in these terms. So when it starts with, you are the most handsome of the sons of men, I mean, this guy looks fabulous. He is ready for his wedding day. And he's probably putting as much effort into his look as brides put into their look today. I don't know how long it took Carrie to get ready for our wedding but she was doing things months in advance. I know that. She was trying on dresses months in advance. She was trying to figure out all these kinds of things, what kinds of flowers and colors would I go with and all the kinds of stuff that she was planning. All I was doing was saying, tell me what time to be there and what my tux needs to look like and, and I'm good. I'll, 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 I'll go cut my own hair and that's fine. Like that's, I'll, I'll make sure I look clean and snazzy. But in this culture, it's kind of the opposite. The groom goes through all the trouble. The groom is the one making preparations. The groom is the one for whom all this is about. And the bride, well, well, we'll get to her in a minute. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Listen, it's grace is poured out on your lips. I looked up this word for poured out. It's the same word used of anointing the high priest. In fact, it's the same word used of anointing a king. Literally, God has anointed your lips with his grace. That's a beautiful picture, y'all. Because what does a king say? Laws. So when he speaks, he's not just speaking laws that he thinks are good ideas. He's speaking laws through lips that are anointed with God's grace. So the laws that he is speaking are, are laws of grace of God applied to his people. They're laws of justice and of righteousness and of purity. But he also speaks blessings among his people. He does them good and not harm. He demonstrates God's grace through his lips. You are, therefore God has blessed you forever, the verse says. We'll get to that more in a minute because we're going to see those blessings come out in a few verses. Look at verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh. O oh, mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Now the picture turns. He's not just a groom on a wedding day. He's a mighty warrior. That mighty one, you may as well translate that hero. He's a hero. He's the guy that's running into the burning building to save the person who needs help. He's the one who is resuscitating someone who is about to die. He is the one who is providing for the needy. He is the one who is taking up his sword and fighting the enemies and doing justice on the battlefield. He is the one leading the charge. He is the one. He is the mighty one. He's prepared for battle. He's mighty in his deeds. He's in splendor and majesty. Verse four, "'And your majesty ride out victoriously.'" I think there's a hymn called Ride Out, Ride Out in Victory or something like that. It was based on this song. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. This is a guy who is devoted to doing God's will. This is a guy who stands for truth, but who's humble, who not only encourages righteousness, but exemplifies it. He's capable of incredible feats, because of God's empowerment. Verse five, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. He doesn't spare the wicked foe. Sometimes we want a ruler who is sweet and kind and loving and gentle, and that's good. But some enemies just need to be destroyed. This is a king that knows when to take up the sword, and he doesn't miss. He hits straight in the heart. Now, you might think this sounds like a great king. Which king is he talking about? I don't think he's talking about a king that has come to pass quite yet. I don't think he's talking about David or Solomon. He's definitely not talking about any of the terrible kings that Israel or Judah have had. He's not talking about a Manasseh or an Ahab. In a couple of weeks, we're gonna look at uh, uh, the chronology of Israel and we're gonna, we're gonna see all these kings play out and many of them are terrible. But even the good ones, even the Josiahs and the Davids that are holy and are doing what God wants them to do, the Hezekiahs, even they don't match up to this. This is, this is far beyond any mortal human being. This is an ideal sort of a king. And yeah, there might be bits and spurts and there might be situations where you could point to a ruler on earth and say, he's exemplifying this. He, he's looking like this. He, he's pointing along the way. There is yet to come a king who will fulfill this completely. Verse 6. His throne is not his throne. Look at this. Your throne, O God. Wait, I thought we were talking about the king. Now we're talking about God? Yes. Because in the author's mind, the king that has been established here, the king that they are singing about, that they are exemplifying, that they are pointing to a higher king, and we'll get to him in a minute, but that king. That authority comes from God. It's not his throne. It's not an earthly throne. It's a heavenly, divinely appointed throne. And so they can point to this earthly throne, this king of Israel, and say, this isn't his throne. It's God's throne. And that just happens to be the guy sitting on it right now. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness He's ruling righteously. By the way, the scepter is what the king extends to you when you are welcome in his presence. And so this is a picture of the king extending righteousness to all who come before him. Verse seven, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, we're back to the king. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions the picture is you are so anointed. You're super anointed. All these other folks, God may have anointed, but man, you are, you're anointed even more, even further. I told you this was all about the king. We're not even through the end of this yet. We're only to verse seven. And, and, and it's still just about the king. We haven't even gotten to the bride. Verse eight, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. You know, you can't pour oil on someone's head, fragrant oil, and their clothes not smell like it later. I got a shirt that I used one time cooking and got some grease splatter on it. It still smells like grease. Carrie will tell you, she hates it when I work in the back because I come home smelling like fries and oil. I can't get it out of my clothes. I I can wash that shirt a thousand times and it still smells like oil and fries. Imagine the anointing of God on those kingly robes such that every time the king puts them on, there's that fresh fragrance to remind him of whose king he is, to remind everybody in the palace of whose king this is. The New Testament talks about our offerings, our our, our actions and our praises being a fragrant offering to God. It's also a reminder of his imperative. You know, I didn't anoint you for nothing. He's constantly being reminded of God's blessing on his life, God's empowerment, God's spirit on him, but also the imperative to do righteousness and to follow God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And we're still not to the queen. This is all just the king daughters of kings, verse nine, are among your ladies of honor. You know, you're, you're so honored that the kings are sending their daughters to serve you. It's pretty honorable. And now we finally get to her. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir, the finest gold around. So let's look at the queen, verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear. Sounds like Sounds like some of the things you'd find in the Proverbs, right? He's saying, consider wisdom, listen to my wisdom. Forget your people and your father's house. Forget your people, forget your father's house. Wait a minute, I thought Genesis 2 said that the man should leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. It does, but now it's kind of turned on its head and said, now you, bride, leave your father and your mother and cleave to your husband. Her majesty is coming from the king. You know, Ruth did this. Ruth uh, and her sister, Orpah, married two brothers and um, lived with their father and mother. Father died, brothers died. So just mother and, and daughters-in-law. And Naomi, the mother, says, I, I, I've got to go back home. I'm in, a, I'm in a foreign place. I hear there's there's food back in Israel now. The famine is, is died down. I, I got to go back home, y'all. Y'all don't worry about me. You go find husbands. You're young enough to find husbands. You go find husbands. I'll be okay on my own. Orpah cries, but she goes. Ruth doesn't go anywhere, and and Naomi says, "Why don't why, why aren't you going back to your home? Go find you a good man to take care of you." And what does Ruth say? No, no, no. I'm going with you. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. This guy saying pull a roof, leave your family, forget them. Now that doesn't mean you never remember them again. This word forget is to turn away and prefer something else. She, she derives her value from the king's estimation. Verse 11, and the king will desire your beauty. This is not an if then kind of thing. This is a both and. You're doing this. The king is desiring you at the same time. And so she begins to see herself as valuable because the king is valuing her. Now that doesn't mean she's only, it's only because she's beautiful. It's only because, you know, she has this great appearance that the king wants her. Because her beauty goes a lot further down than just the skin. Look, uh, uh, since he is your lord, bow to him. A submission to the king. But this isn't a submission like I am ruling over you so you have to do whatever I say. This is a submission of I am going to care for you and love you and if you trust me and follow me. So that's the kind of submission that we don't often talk about in the terms of husband and wife. But the husband ought to be the kind of leader that the wife can follow. And the wife needs to be the kind of wife that follows the husband, that encourages the husband. When you do do this together, it's amazing how beautiful the wedding and the marriage become. Because it's not just about me getting what I need and you getting what you need. It's now about us making sure that each other are built in his likeness. It, 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 it's a, there's a reason this is a beautiful song of marriage. She bows to him because she trusts him. And, and her majesty, just as her majesty kind of derives from the king, it shares in his splendor too. Uh, look in verse 12. The people of Tyre, representative of all the nations, will seek your favor with gifts, the riches, richest, excuse me, of the people. The, the nations are bringing in their gifts to honor the royal couple. Verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. Y'all, y'all, there is so much splendor and majesty in this kingdom that they put gold in the clothes, in many colored robes. So wealthy, such wide trade. They can get dyes of all sorts of different colors from all sorts of different lands. In many colored robes, she is led to the king. And she's fashionable too, with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Too bad it has nothing to do with us today, right? Oh no, y'all ought to know me better than that. Those of you who have been here longer than 20 minutes probably know, uh, every word of God not only applies to the moment in which it's written, but it applies in our moment and it'll apply for all eternity future too. And so, so here, what, what, is, what is he getting at? What is he talking about here? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's obvious to know who the king is. It can't be a normal person. Nobody can live up to this. And this queen and all the splendor and majesty, she can't just be a a particular woman in history. No, it's got to be pointing to something bigger. It is. It's pointing to our Messiah. Now, he's obviously the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. When I look at this, I see Jesus all over it. Grace poured out on his lips. Speaking grace and truth. He he is blessed forever by God. No wonder he's blessed forever. He's God's son. And he fulfills God's will perfectly. He's a fighter. You don't believe me? Read Revelation. See him riding on a right horse. You don't want to be on the opposite army side. You want to be behind him saying, Go Jesus, get him. You don't want to be facing that white horse with that rider who's called faithful and true. You don't want to be facing him. And believe me, he will ride out victoriously and he will ride for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. His right hand will be teaching us awesome deeds. His aim is true. He's not going to let the wicked foe go. He's going to do his will. This is why he can say your scepter is a scepter of righteousness You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. Would you say Jesus was anointed by God? I mean, what do you think Christ means? Christ means Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Anointed one. He's not just a anointed. He is the anointed. But who's his queen? Who's that that beautiful lady standing at his right side? Who's that one that he went to her, her chamber and brought her? into his palace, the one wearing those fine robes of gold in many colors. It's probably the most beautiful part about this song. It's us. We are the bride of Christ. Now, I said earlier, I've never been a bride. I have no clue what being a bride feels like. I happen to know one. And if her face was any indication when she walked down that aisle, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure she was happy about the occasion. Y'all, she was so happy about the kid. I swear the edges of her lips were touching in the back of her head. She was smiling so big. Afterwards, she was like, she was looking through pictures with me. She was like, they were there? Yeah, they were there. I I don't remember them being there. I don't remember them being there either. I said, do you remember me being there? (laughs) Her focus wasn't on anybody else. All that time and effort that she spent getting ready was for me. And all that time I spent getting ready, preparing getting my hair cut. There's a whole lot more getting ready than that, I promise. Just not physically. All that time I spent preparing to receive her at that altar, it was her. I couldn't take my eyes off her smile walking down the aisle. It's too beautiful. I, I couldn't. And even now when she smiles, the whole room lights up. That is the way that Christ feels about his church, but far greater than I could ever muster. When he looks at his bride, even though she makes some really dumb choices sometimes. Even though we fail and we falter and we make mistakes, he looks at us with love and compassion and he says, you're still my bride. I still love you. What a powerful image that the God of the universe would would give his son to die for people who most of all would reject him but for those few who would accept him, would love them so unconditionally that no matter how much they fail, he would still love them, still redeem them. I don't know how much the sons of Korah knew as they were penning this psalm, but I do know this. They knew there had to be more than just the king they were looking at. And they knew one day that perfect king would come. Today we suffer through difficult circumstances we ask where justice is. We, we, we look at evil and it seems to overwhelm good at every turn. Nations turn from God and oppress people with violence and tyranny. We see leaders abdicating their responsibilities, speaking lies in office. We see greed and selfishness running rampant in corporate boardrooms. We see a lack of critical supplies equipment, and medicines as they're hoarded, rationed, villainized. We find ourselves in the days of Psalms 42 through 44, begging for God's presence, yearning for vindication, asking God when he will rise up and rescue us from the enemies that surround. Oh, but there's a day coming. There is a day When God's glorious king reigns from on high forever and ever and exercises his justice and his righteousness in us, through us, to us. There's coming a day. And one of the most beautiful aspects of our difficult circumstances of today is that we get a little tiny piece of that when we take communion. You might not have ever thought about it that way. You might have thought about communion as relating to Christ dying. It does. It's when it was instituted. It was a Passover meal. In fact, in Luke chapter 22, he's reclining at the table with his disciples and he says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. There is coming a day when this is no longer a picture or a symbol or a hold over till then. Just as the sacrifices on the day of atonement were a picture forward to a perfect sacrifice, this meal is a picture forward to a perfect meal, a perfect feast, a wedding supper of the Lamb. And we as his bride are going to partake in that. So I ask you before we partake, are you ready? Are you ready for that day to come? Is this your king in Psalm 45? Is this your king or is this someone else's king? As a black preacher once said, I wonder, do you know him today? Do you know this king who is righteous, this mighty one who rides out victoriously? Do you know this king? It's a good day too. If you do, are you following this king? Are you actually doing what he says? Or do you take it more as suggestions? You know there are sometimes there are some times when let's just be honest, we'd rather do our own thing, but if he's really your king, it's time to follow him. I'm gonna be up here at the front if I can help you maybe 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 help you come to know this king, maybe just to follow this king better, I'll be glad to do whatever I can. You come and and I'll pray for you, and we'll we'll figure out what that needs to be. maybe you just maybe you just just need to pray. The altar will be open. You can come up here, pray. Whatever you need to do, you you do right now as they come um, to lead us in a verse of invitation. Let's pray together. Father God, you are the king. Your son is this king of Psalm 45. Jesus Christ is this king. And your throne, oh God, is forever. I don't have to worry about you getting overthrown or overruled. I don't have to worry about a coup. I don't have to worry about wickedness on the throne because you are the perfect king. So Father, would you reign in us? Would you reign in me? Would you help us to do what you want us to do? Would you lead us to the cross to surrender our sins to you? Would you lead us to follow you in righteousness? Would you lead us to do the things that will honor and please you just as the bride prepares herself for the king's delight? May we seek your delight. Our King. You reign in honor and majesty, and we will follow you. And this time you do your will in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.